Well, good afternoon, everyone. That was a pretty lively response, quite honestly. I don't even think I have to ask you to do that again. I'm Paul Levengood, President and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's banner lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. And as always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make this lecture series possible. Now, before we proceed with today's program, let me remind you of our next banner lecture, which will take place here at noon on Thursday, December 5th. I can't believe I'm saying December, but December 5th, this will be our, uh, the uh, next banner lecture. On that day, uh, author and Virginia Historical Society trustee William Wooldridge will be here to talk about mapping Virginia, pictures of a moving place. 1587 to 1783. Uh, he wrote a book on, on maps of Virginia that is absolutely beautiful. Uh, and you will not want to miss this if you're like me, a map person, and, and loves seeing these wonderful ways to look at history. Well, the next installment of our See You in Class program begins that very same day, December 5th. Uh, Bert Dunkerley, who's taught here before, from the Richmond National Battlefield Park, will be here to lead a two-part class on Bacon's Rebellion. So if you are feeling especially anti-authoritarian, uh, you might want to consider coming. Just please don't mess the place up the way Bacon's uh, men did. Uh, so that will be December 5th and 12th at 5.30 in the evening. And you can find more information about any of these upcoming lectures, classes, the gallery walks we do, the bus trips we take, and the behind-the-scenes tours that go on. Uh, you can either find them on our website, vahistorical.org, or pick up information at the museum shop when you leave today. Now, finally, if you would please check your cell phone and turn it off or turn it silent, anything that will keep it from interrupting our speaker today. I always love seeing people reach in their pocket and start trying to figure out how you make those little devices quiet. An active community nestled near Richmond's Bird Park, the Carillon neighborhood has a surprisingly rich and complex history. Basing her lecture on her recently published work, The Carillon Neighborhood, A History, our speaker will relate the story of the area's land and people from the colonial frontier to antebellum farmland, Gilded Age streetcar suburb to upscale Jazz Age development, site of a post-war housing boom to a hub for civil rights activism. Also important to the story of the neighborhood is the Carillon Civic Association and its efforts in the turbulent 1960s and 70s to nurture one of Virginia's first successfully integrated communities. Dr. Elizabeth O'Leary, an American, American art historian, earned both an MA and PhD from the University of Virginia. Last summer, she retired from the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts after 14 years, 10 of which serving as associate curator of American art. Beth has also worked at Monticello, the Hunter Museum of American Art in Chattanooga, and the Rinalda House Museum of American Art in Winston-Salem. She has served as an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Richmond and as guest curator at Maymont House, where she developed the current Below Stairs exhibition about domestic service. And she has also been a teacher in our CU in class offerings. She did that a little while ago for us. In 2010, Beth was lead, lead author of American Art 
at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Among her other publications are From Morning to Night, Domestic Service in Maymont House and the Gilded Age South, and At Beck and Call, The Representation of Domestic Servants in 19th Century American Painting. Her newest work, The Carillon Neighborhood, A History, is not only the subject of today's lecture, but is also available for purchase in our museum shop. And I'm sure if you ask her nicely, she will sign a copy for you after the lecture. Now, as for what she is up to these days, on behalf of VMFA, she recently authored a successful nomination of the Robinson House for the Virginia, Historic's Land Virginia Historic Landmarks list and is awaiting word about inclusion on the National Register of Historic Places. As the Robinson House undergoes restoration, she is serving as project historian for an exhibition about the antebellum story of the Robinson family and the house's subsequent history as the headquarters for the Confederate soldiers' home on the site. The house is slated for opening in the fall of 2015. So please join me in welcoming Beth O'Leary, who will speak to us today about Carillon, the story of a Richmond community. Thanks so much, Paul, and what an honor to be invited back uh, to be part of your Distinguished Banner Lecture Series. And it brings me particular pleasure to speak to you today about Richmond's own Carillon neighborhood, which, in case you're not familiar with it, is quite near. It's uh, a, mile and a, half, a mile and a half due south from here. And happily, online satellite photos makes it easy to show you its location. Uh, you are recognizing here uh, Richmond's near west end on the north bank of the James. Uh, you probably can spot the fan. You look closely and you can see the boulevard and, and there it is. Here's where we're gathered at the Historical Society. And so from here you just go south down the boulevard past uh, the Fountain Lake or Boat Lake as it was once called. Um, and the tennis courts, and oops, there's uh, the Statue of Columbus. I know you're with me. You go around the reservoir, and I'll be talking about the reservoir in a little bit. And then you come uh, to a place where you're facing uh, the Carillon. And it's this handsome bell tower uh, from which the neighborhood takes its name. And this was built generations ago as Virginia's World War I memorial. And once you reach this scenic spot, well, you turn right, and you're there. Now, the Carillon neighborhood has distinct boundaries, with Bird Park to the east, the James River to the south, the ramp of, of the Powhite Parkway to the west, and the I-195 Expressway to the north, so it's sort of enclosed. And when we uh, look at it from this lofty view, you notice what I noticed. It looks like a fish standing on its tail. As folks drive through Bird Park, uh, past Dogwood Dale, um, maybe on their way to Maymont, maybe going further south across the James on what we still call the Nickel Bridge, uh, they can easily miss this tucked away neighborhood. But if they do turn west, they discover a more extensive community than initially meets the eye. There are over 400 residences of various ages and styles, an elementary school, that's where John B. Carey is, 
and two churches. And you see one of them here on the uh, far right, you see First Unitarian Universalist, and the other uh, nearby church is Unity of Richmond. Now in the interest of full disclosure, this is also my neighborhood. I serve as the historian for the Carillon Civic Association, a, a community organization that celebrates its 45th anniversary in just a few days. So the timing for this talk is happy indeed. Beginning a few years ago in anticipation of this anniversary, I began conducting oral histories among current and former neighbors, and I, I'm happy to see some of them here today. And they shared with me the compelling history of the Commonwealth's first consciously integrated community, an effort that began with fan fanfare in 1968. And through additional research, much of it conducted upstairs in VHS's amazing archives, I discovered a larger narrative that spans a couple of centuries. On this land, comprising just over 180 acres, I found a compelling microcosm of the story of Virginia. Now I know most in this audience are quite familiar uh, with very early Virginia history, and no doubt you recognize this detail from the 1607 John Smith map, and it pictures various Native American settlements. The rocks and rapids at the falls uh, shown here on the James River is where the English established a small trading post that would eventually become Richmond. At that time, this region stood at the western perimeter of land inhabited by a band of Algonquin Indian tribes closely allied under the leadership of Chief Powhatan. By the end of the 17th century, after the English laid claim to the land through treaty and through war, the Virginia Assembly gave several land grants to William Byrd, adding to his already considerable holdings inherited from his uncle. Byrd bequeathed close to 30,000 acres in this region to his son and namesake, who helped lay out the original street plan for Richmond. But good fortune ran out for the next generation when William Byrd III incurred such large debts that in 1768 he was forced to sell most of the huge estate in 100-acre lots. And I'm showing you a detail of a map of the bird lottery parcels here. And the several plats of land that would include today's Carillon neighborhood were won in the lottery by Francis Watkins of Prince Edward County, and shortly thereafter were sold to William Fouché, Richmond's first mayor. By the turn of the 19th century, Richmond was well-established and the old colonial footpaths heading westward became wagon roads, including Weston Plank Road, or Turnpike, as it's labeled here on this 1819 map. Now, this road, which we know today as Cary Street, became a significant transportation artery serving the developing farms and plantations in western Henrico County. And it would be some time, though, um, before the future Carillon property was settled um, for Watkins and for Fouché and then a handful of subsequent owners in the early 19th century. This land was purchased as an investment, not for settlement and cultivation. 
And this story of early acquisition and turnover um, between 1800 and the 1840s is, is much more than we want to go into today, but I do want to mention um, that very important factor fueling interest in the area in those decades, and that's the construction of the Kanawha Canal along the north bank of the James River. Because of the hazardous rocks at the fall line in Richmond, the canal was crucial for travel and commerce with regions upriver, and it was also key to Richmond's growth. It began as a grand project by the James River Company for which George Washington helped support uh, in the late 18th century. And from that time uh, uh, through several decades afterwards, the canal was expanded and improved and included the addition of three mile locks just south of today's Carillon area. One of the canal's earliest features, the lower arch, is still visible there today. Um, at the bottom right here, you're seeing a wonderful engraving here in the VHS collection. This was made in 1834, giving us a picturesque view of the city with the bending James River and the canal uh, with the uh, goods being mo uh, moved along by bateau. You see the state capital in the distance, and if we were standing in this place, the future Carillon neighborhood, then in the backwoods of uh, Henrico County, would be just behind us over our right shoulders. Now through the 1840s and 50s, the land that'll make up the neighborhood and the property immediately to its east that would eventually become Bird Park was subdivided further. And I'm showing you some of the names of the property owners, but not all, uh, just to give you an idea of the key figures. At right, you see a large tract marked Shields. Uh, this is the Poplar Vale Estate. Um, this was land sold by Fushi to John Robinson in 1799, and by the mid-19th century, it had been inherited by his son-in-law, John Shields, and by the way, that is how they, the family spelled their name. Um, uh, later on, the city would use the more conventional spelling of Shields. The Poplar Vale Manor House stood on a knoll close to where Amelia Street cuts between the two uh, lakes, man-made lakes and Bird Park. Also notice the property uh, below that, uh, then owned by Dr. O.A. Crenshaw, and this land would eventually be sold to James Dooley in the 1880s to form the Maimon Estate. Now on the eve of the Civil War, two prominent Richmonders owned the future Carillon neighborhood between them, Philip Mayo Tabb, Jr., who went by the initials P.M. Uh, to the north, and Bowling W. Haxel to the south. Now the property between their, uh, the line that divided their properties um, falls uh, where present day Garrett Street runs east-west today. It's uh, alongside the Unitarian Church that we saw earlier. P.M. Tabb named his 100-acre estate Blandon, and his brick manor house stood very close to where Cary Elementary School is today. And Bowling Haxel's property beneath that stretched south to, all the way to the canal. And he named his 94-acre estate Beechwood Farm. A few words about these landowners. In the 1850 census, P.M. Tabb Jr. listed his primary occupation as farmer. And he did cultivate crops at his Blandon farm aided with the help of at least eight enslaved laborers. 
ages 50 to 9 years old, as this listing indicates. Tab built his reputation with a different livelihood, however. In the antebellum period, he and his father were partners in P.M. Tab and Son, a firm that sold, traded, and hired out enslaved African Americans. It was one of their sales transactions that brought international notoriety to P.M. Tab Jr. In the 1849 book, Autobiography of Henry Box Brown, Tab was mentioned by name as the owner of Brown's wife, Nancy, and it was Tab who sold her away. After Brown escaped and found support from Northern abolitionists in the late 1840s, he published his fam famous memoirs in Boston and in London. Tab's neighbor to the south, Bowling Haxel, was an enormously successful businessman whose fortune came from his family's flower company, one of the nation's largest in milling and exporting during the antebellum period. And I'm showing you uh, a picture of the Haxel Mill on the James River. Uh, it was located uh, near South 7th Street. Now, as in his detailed account books, which are here in the archives, uh, Haxel cataloged his other investments in real estate and also in African-American slaves. He didn't reside at Beechwood Farm. He leased that land to other farmers as an additional source of income. Instead, Haxel, the Haxel family resided in town in their grand Italianate mansion at 211 East Franklin, and many of you might recognize it as the Women's Club of Richmond. Now, during the Civil War, both Tab and Haxel served the Confederacy in local defense regiments, and they made it to the war's end unscathed. But they were hurt economically. Of course, Tab's lucrative sale, slave trading ceased um, with the end of the war and, and with emancipation, and Haxel's flour mills uh, sustained damage during the evacuation fire. But despite these financial setbacks, each managed to hold on to his Henrico County property through the 1870s. And it was in that decade that the country estates gained unexpected added value when the city of Richmond chose to build a new municipal reservoir and park on the adjoining land. And this set into motion what would become the city's largest public works project of the 19th century, spearheaded by the visionary city engineer Wilfred Cutshaw. The first major feature of the future park was the four million gallon reservoir completed in 1875. And it was built on the acreage that I've pictured here in green. And I'll be showing you the expansion of the park in green, so you'll, you'll want to keep an eye out for that. And within a few years, the open air reservoir was ornamented with a wide walkway around its upper ramparts. Uh, as you see from the vintage postcard at the top left. And nearby was the park's most appealing feature. It was a man-made boat lake with meandering pedestrian promenades and carriage roads. Um, by the way, if you want to read more about the development of Bird Park, you'll want to pick up Tyler Potterfield's book, The Nonsuch Place. It's a wonderful story of green spaces in Richmond. New Reservoir Park later renamed Williamburg Park, grew as the city purchased more private properties stretching south to the canal. In 1882, 
Near the site of the old three-mile locks, the city built a magnificent new pump house. And the structure was quite a beauty. It, it still is quite a beauty. I know many of you have been to visit it. Uh, it was designed by Cutshaw in the Victorian Gothic style and it was built from stone quarried nearby. Downstairs were the mechanical pumps uh, that sent water to the reservoir and to the citizens of Richmond, and upstairs was a large arcaded dance pavilion. Now, as you might imagine, park development sparked a multi-decade campaign of real estate speculation, and the heirs of Tab and Haxel were beneficiaries. This article in the Richmond Dispatch comments on Haxel's descendants selling Beechwood Farms to Thomas Blanton, who was the owner of the Richmond Dairy Company. And in turn, Blanton quickly subdivided and sold sections of the property, one parcel in particular going for more than three times his purchase price in only one year. By the late 1880s, the park reached a total of 300 acres, including the acquisition of Poplar Vale to the east, where Swan and Shields Lakes would be built and landscaped after the turn of the century. As the park grew, so did the number of visitors uh, coming to the region, particularly after uh, the new electric streetcar lines began shuttling city dwellers to the open spaces. And I've indicated in purple a couple of those Here's one of the streetcar lines coming to Boat Lake and the other uh, coming south uh, just below the reservoir and, and there was a little pavilion uh, right there uh, where today's Vita course is today. Uh, this was also the decade when the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad laid the north-south uh, line to the west and here's the rail line coming in and uh, going across the, the uh, bridge and also the Richmond and Allegheny Railroad purchased the canal and established the east-west line along the old uh, canal towpath uh, right along there. On his death in 1881, P.M. Tabb bequeathed the large Blandon estate to his children and the sections closest to the reservoir in the streetcar stop were the first to be laid out into streets and lots for future sale. Now, Tab's heirs also leased land and the old manor house to a concessionaire who ran a private park called Blandon Park, named after the estate. With its own dance pavilion and picnic grounds, this property became an unofficial extension of the city park. And the newspapers in the 1890s are filled with notices of activities at Blandon Park. There are dances and veterans reunions, baseball games and shooting contests. In 1902, the small private park closed when those six acres and the old plantation house were sold to William Ruger, a Richmond restaurateur and a saloon keeper. In 1911, this prosperous businessman built the 11-story Hotel Ruger across from the state capitol, and that's today's Commonwealth Park Suites. And on his Henrico property adjoining the new reservoir, he tore down the old tab place and built his own mansion, which he called Idle Hour. And in this um, 1930s aerial view, we see the house. Uh, uh, and it was a large residence that stood on this site until the 1950s, when it was demolished to make way for Cary School. And just to the south, 
were built these uh, large commercial greenhouses. Uh, they were built at the turn of the century by Mann and Brown florists. Uh, between 1890 and the late 1940s, Mann and Brown were the leading purveyors of the elaborate floral uh, decorations for Richmond society. And their greenhouses dominated this area uh, for decades. And in 1920, co-owner co Herbert Brown built his own imposing residence nearby facing the reservoir. Uh, today called Blanton House, uh, this building holds administrative offices for the Richmond Department of Parks and Recreation. There were other homes going up in the area uh, at the turn of the century, a notable one built by Charles Euchre, another German-American, and uh, another saloon owner. Um, in 1898, this successful restaurateur and his wife purchased just over an acre on the road leading to the pump house, and they established a country estate that they named Marburg uh, after his hometown in Germany. In 1905, this Civil War veteran served as the commandant of the old soldier's home, which was next door here, and that's the uniform you see him wearing here in this news clipping. Today, the Marburg farmhouse has the distinction of being the oldest residence standing in the neighborhood, and you can find it on the corner of Rugby and Butte. And I'll come back to Marburg again in just a moment. So looking at our, our map, I'm showing you where Euchre's property is. There's Marburg uh, hugging the park. And by 1906, uh, the former Haxel land has been subdivided several times, as you see. And it was in that year that the city of Richmond annexed land in Henrico County, now including the fully expanded William Byrd Park. And a few years later, 1914, annexed the neighborhood as well. And there was so much to attract city dwellers to this area, not only the natural features of the park, but also the exciting new attractions sprouting up along the eastern shore of Boat Lake. Just after the turn of the century, the privately owned West End Electric Park opened a large entertainment hall there, which was expanded and renamed Idlewood Park in 1906. This amusement park enticed thrill seekers with its casino, shooting ranges, carousel, swimming pool, and reportedly, one of the largest roller coasters in the United States. It was wildly successful, drawing thousands of visitors there. It was also underfunded. Uh, within five years, it closed down. And the city uh, raised it to the ground to make room for new residences. Houses began sprouting up to the west of the park as well. The right combination of ambition and money came together in the 1920s in the formation of William Byrd Parkway, a 20-acre development spearheaded by real estate magnate Roger Gregory. Uh, this was the same decade that other high-end planned communities such as Windsor Farms and Ginter Park were being developed. I'm showing you Gregory's 1923 plan here just to orient you. Uh, this is um, Byrd Park. Um, this is uh, the future site of where the Carillon uh, will go. It's, actually, it's a little further over here. And this is uh, Marburg, where Euchre used to live. This is where T.M. Carrington, the tobacco magnate, was living in the 20s. 
Now, in citing the new streets, Gregory determined that the formal entrance uh, to uh, Williamburg Parkway should line up opposite the place in Bird Park where the city had recently donated land for a yet unplanned World War I memorial. And from the start, even before any houses were built, Gregory signaled his intentions for an upscale development uh, by creating a ceremonial entryway uh, with flanking brick pillars crowned with eagle-topped arches and curving benches. And for many years, the marker in the median bore a bas-relief plaque of the Bird family coat of arms. By 1930, the neighborhood boasted several lavish residences designed in fashionable revival styles by leading architects with Beaux-Arts training. I'm just showing you just a few. At top left, a British arts and crafts residence designed by W. Duncan Lee for John and Clara Brockenbrough for their 20-acre uh, property to the southwest. And you can find the brick mansion today in the midst of the Kanawha Trace development. At right, a large colonial revival home on Sunset Avenue designed by D. Wiley Anderson for the owner of Noldy Bakery. And then shown at bottom, a country tutor designed for Charles Fentress by Otis K. Asbury, located on Rugby Road. Now, Otis Asbury also uh, designed Blue Shingles. This was an outsized arts and crafts cottage built in 1922 for coal executive Lorenzo Evans. Blue Shingles sat in the midst of a wooded 14-acre lot to the west, accessed at the end of Butte Lane and across a railroad bridge. And as you see from this period picture, it had a breathtaking view of the river. Sad to say, it no longer exists. Uh, shortly after it was sold in the mid-20, I mean, I'm sorry, mid-1960s, for development speculation, the empty house was savagely vandalized and it was condemned by the city and raised in 1968. The decade of the 1920s also brought another streetcar line, uh, this time directly into the heart of the Carillon neighborhood. Uh, Virginia Electric and Power extended a line 11 miles south from Broad Street down Belmont Avenue, and it ended it on Garrett Street. And there at the end of the line, passengers riding north would need to wait for the conductor to flip all the seat backs over uh, so they could face the opposite direction. Um, I really love this photograph. You can see the, the carillon in the background there. Neighborhood development uh, continued in the 1930s, but uh, of course at a much slower pace in the midst of the Great Depression. The decade's main event came with the building of the carillon the World War I Memorial Bell Tower was planned before the stock market crash, and it was funded with donations from the city, state, and private citizens. This so-called singing tower stands 240 feet tall and originally housed 66 bronze bells. And to this day, musical programs are still being played by Carolanur on the keyboard, which is four, four stories up in the tower. The tower's lower floor was prepared as a war museum, and for many decades it housed World War I relics. The opening uh, 
was October 15, 1932, um, and you see a photograph of that dedication here, and it, it was held with great uh, military pageantry. Uh, I love this photograph. It shows just the moment when the, you see the regiments of VMI and Virginia Tech uh, cadets marching down Blanton and approaching the waiting dignitaries and crowds uh, for the dedication. Uh, they marched all the way from the state capitol for, for the, the ceremony. Um, the story of the, the monument uh, design competition and the intrigue and the controversy surrounding it is another story. <laughs> I can't go into it today, uh, but it is covered in my booklet. It's another lecture entirely. I, I know uh, VCU grad student uh, Jessica Vitek is uh, working on it for her thesis. It's going to um, be a good story. I know she'll do a good job with that as well. But as you might guess, uh, during the Depression, uh, modifications had to be made to the grand plans uh, that uh, because of dwindling budgets, and that included cutting um, the cost of the uh, landscaping the grounds. I'm showing you the original plans uh, for the proposed landscaping. This is a 1932 watercolor. Funding shortfalls uh, eliminated the formal terraces and the plantings around the tower, and also the long reflecting pool to the north. It was excavated, but it was never completed. I know you wondered what that little scoop was all about. Um, even though the uh, pool was never put in, it, uh, that didn't stop an entrepreneurial printing company uh, from picturing the non-existent basin on postcards in the 1930s and 40s. You, you can get these on eBay. I've got a few. Uh, today, that sunken mall is the site of festivals and ball games. And by the way, um, during the occasional hurricane, it does fill up with water, and we can see what it looks like as a reflecting pool. <laughs> Another photo made a couple years later, around 1934, reveals that the neighborhood remained mostly undeveloped uh, during the Depression. Streets are laid out through open fields, punctuated by a few houses. And it's clear that the poor economy brought the scheme of a, a large, posh enclave of manor houses to a standstill. I think this photo is intriguing in so many ways. Uh, for instance, you can see the remnants of the city nursery um, south of the Carillon and then also south of the reservoir. Um, the, the trees are laid out in regular rows. By this time, the city nursery, municipal nursery had moved to Bryan Park. But also on the left, um, you can spot South Belmont. And I'm pretty sure this little dot is the streetcar chugging down to Garrett Street right on schedule. World War II fueled a strengthening economy and development picked up exponentially in the 1940s. This sales brochure printed in 1942 assures potential buyers that William Byrd Parkway has it all. Right location, right construction, right price, right now. <laughs> no period of time brought as much building activity to the Carillon neighborhood as the 1940s and 50s. 
the Federal Housing Administration, established during the Depression to stimulate the housing market, provided loans to builders wanting to put up acres of tract housing. And seemingly overnight, approximately 250 modest-sized homes, primarily brick Cape Cods, went up in the fields north of Garrett Street. Uh, this aerial view from 1951 shows the dramatic growth of new houses. This is our own little Levitt town, all, ranking, uh, uh, all spanking new and uh, hardly any trees uh, growing up at this time. And in this view as well, taken from a different angle, looking uh, east towards the reservoir. The demolition of the old man and brown greenhouses also opened up dozens of lots to builders. And these new houses sold quickly to buyers qualifying for FHA loans, and quite a few sold in the post-war years to returning soldiers who benefited from the GI Bill. The housing boom continued through the 1950s. And um, just looking at this, also you see here the old Ruger Mansion has been cleared to make way uh, for the new John B. Carey Elementary School, which opened in 1954. That's another important chapter in the community narrative that I won't be able to tell you about today, the story of Carey School and the innovative model school established there in the 1960s, spearheaded by the indomitable Barbara Gray. Um, it's a wonderful legacy, um, and it, it's, I've also uh, covered that in the, the neighborhood booklet. Now, in, in addition to the new elementary school, there was so much more to attract potential buyers. Of course, the park with the natural features, the brand new amphitheater going up uh, that'll become Dogwood Dell, a nearby Carytown with its shops and stores and movie theaters. This 1950 promotional poster for the CNO Railroad captures something of that post-war boosterism, and it presents a very sunny scene with well-dressed tourists and suburbanites mingling under the blue skies in the towering Carillon. Clearly understood at the time, however, was the fact that not everyone was welcome here. As the builder's brochure confirmed, the city park facilities and the neighborhood were restricted to the, quote, right people. African-Americans were excluded. <coughs> By custom and law, segregation was pervasive and enforced, and deeds came with restrictive covenants. This is the 1942 title policy for my house on Sunset Avenue, complete with condition number five, stating the house could not be sold to anyone not of the Caucasian race. The 1960s was a turbulent decade here and nationally, of course with the Civil Rights Movement and the escalation of the Vietnam War. It was a period of profound social changes and these co coincided with significant physical changes to the neighborhood. Residents woke up one fall day in 1966 to read in their newspapers that the city would soon start construction of the new RMA Expressway, the final phase of a comprehensive master plan for urban development. This two-page spread from the Times-Dispatch shows an artist's conception of what was to come, including the slicing off of entire streets and about three dozen homes, principally north 
on Rosewood, Idlewood, and Maplewood, but also homes on the western ends of the streets in the Carillon neighborhood. Um, I really enjoy looking at this uh, photograph. Uh, it, sh it shows the neighborhood in 1966, but it also shows you blue shingles uh, right before its demolition. Now the late uh, Teresa King, an, a neighbor who was never shy about contacting the media when she wanted to make a point, went on record about the challenges of living in a multi-year construction zone, and it took a while. The expressway wasn't finished until 1973. But at least her house survived. The aggressive campaign of clearance demolished businesses and residences in nearly all of Richmond's African-American neighborhoods. The construction in the late 1950s of the I-95 corridor and the expressway in the 1960s displaced an estimated 20,000 black residences, and the number of housing units available to them was dismally inadequate. As African-American families explored sites for relocation, new federal laws made once segregated neighborhoods like the Carillon viable options. The first black family moved onto Grant Street in late 1967, three years after Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. By the time Congress enacted Title VIII, the Federal Fair Housing Act, in the spring of 1968, the integration of the neighborhood was well underway. The transition also unfolded against the tumultuous backdrop of the assassination of Martin Luther King, which triggered demonstrations and rioting around the country, including some incidents in Richmond. By late summer 1968, the black population of the Carillon neighborhood had reached over 40%, with great numbers of white residences have, residents having sold their homes quickly uh, to flee to the West End. In the lingo of the time, this had become, quote, a changing neighborhood. A group of concerned white residents gathered to discuss implications of the rapid change and with the support and participation of several of their new African-American neighbors, the Carillon Civic Association was formed and within months made a bold stance. In a much publicized meeting on November 18, 1968, the association publicly announced that it would nurture, um, nurture integration and they would do this through a strong coalition of black and white residents. The first notice went out to neighbors, and I'm showing it to you here on the left, uh, with the invitation to join the nascent organization. I, I really get tickled when I see this, because I have to tell you, it's still just $5 to join the CCA today, <laughs> after 45 years. In four years before Virginia passed its own fair housing legislation, the association made it a priority to fight the scare tactics used by some, some real estate agents to frighten white residents into selling their homes at a low price, only for the agents to resell at a large profit to a black family, a practice called blockbusting. The Carillon area was also subject to other unscrupulous practices, including redlining of integrated neighborhoods by banks, which made mortgage lending difficult. Also, racial steering where real estate agents would send white and black clients only to respective segregated neighborhoods. 
the Civic Association's formation and stated goal, the notion that people of different races could live together harmoniously, got quite a bit of press coverage. And happily, the Neighborhood Archives has clippings and papers of some of those pioneering residents in the early years, and you see several of them here. Among these neighbors is Frank Gilbert. Uh, Frank is right here. Uh, CCA's first president and tireless advocate. There isn't enough time to recognize everyone who pitched in in those early years, but I do want to mention a few other of the CCA founders. Ruth Jones, pictured at top left, uh, was a practicing social worker, and she and her pediatrician husband, Basil Jones, held the earliest meetings in their living room on Sunset Avenue. And then going uh, clockwise, uh, top right is a great picture of the second CCA president. This is a very energetic Bob Loveless who grew up in the neighborhood in the 1930s. Key leadership came from the much beloved Abbott Lambert, and you see him at bottom right. He was the vice president at Tallheimer's. And at bottom left is a picture of the venerable Harold Marsh, uh, the attorney and later judge who became the Civic Association's third president, and many of you know he was the brother of Henry Marsh, who would serve as Richmond's first black mayor. Sad to tell you that all of these active visionaries have passed away. Now from the start, these individuals and dozens of their neighbors, and a few of them present with us today, worked to slow down white flight, combat fear and prejudice, and foster economic and social stability. And in an effort that took multiple years, they were able to achieve and maintain that balance. This also meant tackling the dual system of housing ads in the classified sections of the local papers. Immediately after the passage of the Fair Housing Act in April 1968, the word, quote, colored, disappeared from public notices. However, a subtle racial distinction continued through a new system. Housing targeted for white residences was listed in columns headed with a numbered geographical zone. And houses designated for non-whites appeared in a separate column under a single heading, houses for sale, with no zone designation. After integration, properties in the Carillon, once listed in zone two, were soon listed under the houses for sale section. Very telling is this one clipping uh, from March 15, 1970, where multiple neighborhood offerings appear. And in the same paper, and published several other times, was a special ad that the CCA placed in the Zone 2 section. It told readers that the neighborhood was a good place to live, and it lists the various advantages. And I especially love the opening line that describes a community quote, where people care not only for their yards, but for each other. CCA membership grew, and both old neighbors and new stepped up to take on committee work. And that was beautification and rumor control, publicity, human relations, fundraising. You're seeing a strategy session here captured in a 1973 news photo. The association's longtime historian, the late Carol Tal, is pictured in the striped top at center, and she later wrote of these early efforts. She said, 
We were young then and full of energy. We thought we could make a difference in a city of segregated neighborhoods. We would be different, and that's what we became. The association's efforts came to the attention of Governor Linwood Holton, who openly declared the neighborhood as a model for successful integration. And he spoke to the 1971 CCA annual meeting, drawing a crowd of over 300. The Civic Association's reputation as a scrappy, determined lot grew during the 1970s by means of several articles and papers and magazines. And many of them quoted Governor Holton's pronouncement that the neighborhood set an example for the rest of Virginia. And behind the scenes, CCA worked to stop illegal real estate practices alongside a brand new organization, HOME, which is an acronym for Housing Opportunities Made Equal, uh, which is HOME is very active still today. And working together and aided by the Justice Department, the two organizations helped to bring about an end to the practice of the dual newspaper listings in 1971. Afterwards, not only did the newspapers list all of the properties under the zoned headings, they also published a bold-faced notice that housing discrimination was illegal. The neighborhood garnered national attention as well. National Neighbors, a federation of interracial neighborhoods, featured the community as the only southern venue in a documentary about successful integration. Funded with a grant from the Ford Foundation, a production crew arrived from Los Angeles in the spring of 1974 to film an annual picnic. The following year, the neighbors all convened to see its the first screening at the First Unitarian Church. Um, I have to just mention that at that time, the church was brand new. Um, in building a new sanctuary, First Unitarian uh, intentionally selected the racially mixed neighborhood uh, for its new uh, sanctuary. Children played an important role in, the, in community building, and in oral histories, I heard much about the 1970s as the heyday of children's activities. And in the following decades, the uh, neighborhood made an effort to sponsor uh, scout troops and sports teams and, and different programs. Uh, this is one of my favorite pictures. This is the Rindale Street Gang uh, from about 1976. In those early years, the community was really aware of the importance of generating a positive perception that the neighborhood was a safe and nurturing place a message amplified in a trifold brochure to, for residents and also for real estate agents. Um, you can see it was produced on an IBM Selectric with uh, hand-lettered uh, headings. What it lacked in professional finish, uh, it made up for uh, in enthusiasm as it celebrated the neighborhood's advantages. And emblazoned on the back was the Civic Association's new motto, good neighbors come in all colors. And during uh, CCA participation in local parades and its new venture, Arts in the Park, the community displayed this motto proudly. The subsequent 1976 version of the neighborhood brochure was a little more polished. This was done by our neighbor, Jim Gillespie. Uh, it was professionally printed to be handed out to real estate companies and prospective buyers. It was also a wonderful morale booster <clears throat> for the neighbors themselves, chock full of uh, great pictures of the houses and residents, all designed with the message, 
<coughs> excuse me, that everyone was welcome. Uh, I know many of you are familiar with the annual Arts in the Park Festival sponsored by the CCA in Bird Park. It's always the first weekend in May. Uh, this now massive arts fair had a, a humble beginning. It was first developed to showcase the successfully integrated neighborhood, but also as an all-community activity to cultivate dialogue and activity among neighbors. Um, this is the clipping publicizing the very first Arts in the Park in 1972, and it pictures the co-chairs. This is Pat Loveless and uh, Richard Tao, and on the right, you're seeing the original uh, poster for Arts in the Park. And Pat Lovelace is still at the helm of Arts in the Park. Uh, she's our formidable general, leading a vast army of volunteers, and you see her here, a top center, and a photograph with her late husband, Bob. And this past May marked the 42nd anniversary uh, for this award-winning event. So uh, thank you, Pat, 42 years. Now, in just a few years after the first show, the project that started out as a community building exercise became a major fundraiser, and the nonprofit CCA faced the happy but serious task of determining what to do with the growing um, profits. So beyond supporting their own programs and beautification, they adopted a philanthropic mission, and over the last four decades, CCA's do donated hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to area causes. Uh, regular recipients include the Belmont Library, Cary School, and of course, uh, the Department of Parks and Recreation to help maintain the Carillon, uh, support summer programming, and also to build the nearby uh, playground. A special biannual program distributes uh, grants to nonprofit and public service organization. To date, uh, now 130 different organizations have profited from donations from the Neighborhood Association. Um, I'm just showing you a recent photograph. These are some of the school children sponsored by the MICA initiative who were able to visit VMFA's mummy exhibit through one of the CCA grants. Physically, the neighborhood grew very little in the 1960s and 70s. In the late uh, 1980s, uh, the southern end of the neighborhood uh, had new development uh, with the coming of Kanawha Trace on the old Brockenborough estate. And this development, frankly, was pretty controversial among the old established neighbors. And there was much concern uh, uh, with the initial proposed uh, uh, sort of covey of townhouses back there, and there was a lot of dialogue with the city about density and, and traffic fears, but those were uh, finally resolved with some creative barriers. And a new developer in the 1990s changed the townhouse concept to instead bring upscale single-family housing to the site, and Kanawha Trace um, uh, continued building in the first decade of the 21st century. It's, it's pretty much uh, finished uh, the development. Uh, up there. It's a beautiful neighborhood. And our last bird's eye view uh, map of the neighborhood brings us back full circle, back to the present with 427 residences and counting. Uh, a new house is being built on my street even as we're speaking. Now from the start, the Civic Association's ongoing mission is to encourage dialogue. Simply put, 
the formation of true community comes from getting to know your neighbor. And to this end, CCA has sponsored many events through the decades, uh, special programs, field trips, holiday parties, and myriad potlucks and picnics we do like to eat, <laughs> including the yearly participation in National Night Out. And such gatherings and our annual uh, CCA meetings are often events where we meet and hear from our council representatives, mayors, school board members, sheriffs, also state delegates and cabinet officials. And by the way, um, there have been residents who have held those positions over the years. Now for many, the unique character of the Carillon neighborhood has inspired new avenues of outreach. As resident Rob Corcoran puts it, it has served as sort of a, quote, incubator for both personal and collective growth. I'm deeply moved at the significant community service performed by several of my current and former neighbors, and I'll mention just a few here. I, I mentioned earlier HOME, the organization, and in fact the Caroline neighborhood was home for many of the housing organization's early founders, including John and, and Sharon Meeser. And you may recognize John, he was a former VCU urban studies professor and is a, the current fellow at UR's Bonner Center for Civic Engagement. And John lectures regularly about demographic and geographic implications of poverty and race in Richmond. Martha Rollins, wearing the, wearing the red shirt in the picture at top center, firmly credits her 1970s CCA experiences for inspiring her to found Boaz and Ruth in 2002. This award-winning nonprofit is dedicated to reducing poverty and providing job and life skills for ex-offenders. And the aforementioned Rob Corcoran is pictured in the lower picture at top right here. Here he is right here. And next to him is his wife, Susan. This British couple came to the US on behalf of an international peace organization called Initiatives of Change. As Rob relates in his book, Trust Building, their experiences in the Carillon neighborhood and in Richmond led to his founding Hope in the Cities, a nonprofit whose goal is racial understanding and reconciliation. In this effort, they were immediately befriended and supported by their Carillon neighbors, Audrey and Collie Burton, the couple who were seated with them. And the Burtons have a long tradition of social activism and working within a circle of local ministers for similar dialogue. Over the decades, CCA has mobilized neighbors over development concerns, including fighting multiple efforts to build high-rise housing on the Blue Shingles property. I'm showing you a, a failed plan on the right. This was from the 1980s. And also helping to stop one memorable campaign to erect the State Science Museum in the woods behind the Carillon. There have been issues surrounding the nearby city stadium. The top clipping is from the 1970s when the CCA helped a joining neighborhood association stop the expansion of that facility. Gosh, there just was no place to put the cars. And in the past three years, the association has been again interested in the stadium property, monitoring the potential sale and development. And that dialogue is still underway. This clipping is from just two weeks ago. Uh, the CCA continues to take part in that conversation. 
The current development concern has been the recent sale of the Marburg property and what appeared to be the impending demolition of the handsome old farmhouse to make way for a cluster of six townhomes. Happily, the most recent news is that there's the possibility that the house will be saved and restored and the number of new houses reduced on that corner lot facing the park. Many neighbors, Councilman Angelasto, and members of Historic Richmond Foundation have been working tirelessly to find a compromise. So goes life in the neighborhood. Now, this isn't to say that everyone is of like mind on every issue. Uh, we're human beings after all. Uh, various civic and state issues bring out a whole range of opinions and we often have very lively dialogue. Um, what has remained constant since the late 1960s is the neighborhood's diversity, an ongoing source of pride. Today's Carillon residents represent different races and ethnicities, ages, socioeconomic standing, sexual orientation, and religions. There's also a wide range of political beliefs uh, made visible during election cycles. <laughs> Unlike most communities, last year's presidential election brought out a flurry of yard signs and bumper stickers inside the old uh, Eagle Gates, and this is yet another way to get to know your neighbor. A year ago, October, the community became part of campaign history with the visit of Barack Obama, who came to speak at the Carillon just 11 days before his reelection. The considerable logistics of bringing a sitting president to an open air rally was truly disruptive with early morning motor co coaches coming in and dropping off 15,000 people to line up along the narrow streets before they entered the park. Uh, some Caroline neighbors were excited and they joined in uh, to take part of the historical event. Others ventured outside their doors to carefully move their Romney uh, signs a little closer to the sidewalk. <laughs> and I'm confident that more than a few residents stopped to take in that moment, which brings a nice coda to this history. The nation's first African-American president spoke a few hundred yards away from land once owned by a prominent slave trader, from farmland worked by enslaved laborers, and where only a generation ago, black and white neighbors joined together to fight for race equality. It's been a privilege to have had the opportunity of chronicling the story of this neighborhood and its many residents past and present who embraced their, quote, changing neighborhood and sought out the true meaning of community, they left us a fine legacy. I'm ending with a statement on CCA's early promotional brochure, um, this from the 1970s here, um, and uh, it says, the Civic Association seeks to bring the spirit of community to an integrated neighborhood set in an urban environment but bordered by Wooded Bird Park. Through social occasions, we try to know our neighbors. Through discussions of public issues, we try to develop and implement policies which benefit our neighborhood and our city. Through projects, we attempt to improve the physical condition of our neighborhood. And I add a now favorite sentiment expressed by those earlier residents. It's also a place where people care, not only for their yards, but for each other. 
Thank you. to the top of the Caroline? Uh, well, uh, the very top is where, oh, excuse me. Can, can you get up to the top of the Caroline? Well, um, the very, very top are where the bells are. Uh, so you can only get so far. I'm sure the city uh, maintenance folks can get to the very top for whatever they need to do. Now, can you get there or can I? Well, it takes some special calls and some favors. Uh, um, and there's an elevator. Uh, that will we'll take you up there. Thank you. Um, I, I knew very little about the Caroline neighborhood, and I do appreciate this lecture. But what I remember from those days are some unpleasantnesses in Bird Park about using the tennis courts and things like that. Uh, could you comment on the Caroline uh, Neighborhood Association in connection with the use of Bird Park by integrated groups? Um, with the Civil Rights Act, uh, a lot of the, that uh, discrimination what became illegal, and the city did change its policies. So uh, the formation of the Caroline Neighborhood Association came along at the time of those changes. Um, and so um, we all remember that Arthur Ashe was not allowed to play tennis on the tennis courts, the city property there. Um, and also that when the municipal swimming pool, which was Shields Lake, was segregated, that was only for white uh, citizens. Um, and those uh, policies changed in the late 50s and early 60s. The CCA formed in 1968. Uh, so they weren't um, necessarily uh, involved with changing those policies because the policies had already changed. I wanted to ask if there was any drama behind the apparent spelling change from Blandon with a D to Blanton with a T that seems to be current. Well, I think it was very subtle, um, as you know, from my talk, uh, PM Tab's Blandon Estate uh, was there for a long time, and Blandon Avenue was spelled with a D for a long time. And then very quietly in the early uh, 20th century, it changed to Blanton with a T. I, my own guess is that was, that was because Thomas Blanton, the dairyman, um, bought the large property to the south, and uh, I think I don't know how, how it happened. I, I, I don't think there was any drama. I haven't found any. Blandon became Blanton. Um, and my guess it had to do with uh, Thomas Blanton owning that property that was once the Beechwood Farms, the Haxel property. Mm -hmm. um, hello. Thank you very much for your wonderful talk. Um, I wanted to say really quickly, of fairly recently, I was taken all the way up to the top of the Carillon by a city employee here, and I've seen all the bells and everything. 
I understand also that there is a lot of repair work that needs to be done to this Carillon, mm -hmm. and I wonder who might pay for that because it's, I guess it's not a city uh, property. But also, I just, I wanted to, what was I just going to say? <laughs> um, well, I can, I can oh, let me tell you one other quick uh -huh. thing. Sure. I, I understood that many years ago a lot of music major students at VCU who were learning to play these bells used to come here uh, every day and they would play for an hour or so at the end of every afternoon and you could hear this. I don't think that exists anymore. Also, the man who plays these bells when he was younger, he used to play much more often. I don't know, how old is he now? I don't think he plays these all that often. Can you tell us? Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. The, the carillon itself, it's very interesting. Um, our, our neighbor, Elizabeth, the late Elizabeth Vermillion, got involved in the 1980s when it was just falling apart. And the, the issue is, it is a state monument um, owned by the Commonwealth on city property. And when they formed that partnership, the city agreed to maintain um, the, the tower and then uh, didn't have enough revenue to do that on a regular basis. They're, they're doing uh, as best they can now. I think they're doing a pretty good job. But yes, there's always maintenance issues. Um, I myself hope that, I mean, we're not too far away from the centennial of, of World War I. And this is our, our World War I monument for Virginia, you know, for the entire state. I, I hope in the next five or six or seven years there'll be an effort to, to do some restoration work there. As far as uh, Carillon, Carillon lessons and how to play it, I, I have seen the keyboard and it's very complicated. It's with long paddles and you'd have to be very physically strong to operate. Uh, the keyboard, uh, it's a, it is a uh, lost art almost, and I, I hope there are more people who will learn to play it. Um, and it is played regularly on uh, uh, Veterans Day, uh, certainly if you come to the um, July 4th uh, fireworks, you hear the carillon bells and, and Memorial Day. So we're, we're lucky in our neighborhood. We get to hear not just the performances, but also the practices. Uh, uh, for the centennial of World War I, mm -hmm. uh, will there be a program of uh, commem commemoration and education? I, I sure hope so. And um, that I know that uh, our councilman, Parker Agilesto, is very interested in, in thinking about that. And also we uh, need to, I, I suspect our state officials are thinking about that as well, too. It's not... It's not too early to start planning that, but I, I don't know the specifics myself. I, I do know that the uh, World War I relics that were once in the basement of the Carillon uh, were moved in the mid-1960s to the Norfolk uh, War Museum. Uh, so I don't know if might, there might be an opportunity to see some of those relics. Um, but stay tuned, I, I'm gonna be interested in that question uh, uh, the answer to that question as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming.